0: the holy gospel according to st luke chapter 12 you, Lord. someone in the crowd said to jesus teacher tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me but he said to him friend who sent me to be a judge or arbitrator over you and he said to them take care be on your guard against all kinds of greed for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions then he told them a parable the land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you, fool. This very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In my country, America, land that I do love, even though these days I see too many things that aren't lovely, but in my country, it seems quite common amongst many of the religious to view God and country as twin allegiances, which sit side by side in our hearts and our value systems and which kind of like spiritual co-chairs, restore our souls and lead us on paths of righteousness for their name's sake. And sometimes that actually kind of seems to work. Like when I pay my taxes and I think of the fact that some of what I pay will be used by my country to help the poor and to come to the aid of those whose lives are devastated by natural disasters or to support public education or to care for the elderly or to feed the hungry or to house the homeless or heal the sick. At other times, however, and we see this most clearly in the Old Testament in the words of most of the prophets, and we see this more clearly at all in the New Testament in the words and deeds and life and death of Jesus, sometimes the values of God and country and or the values of God and culture are at stark odds with each other. The examples are myriad. One of them, for example, being in how the Bible talks and how Americans talk when we talk about immigrants and refugees. Our texts for today, on the other hand, all of them, zero in on another example of oft-conflicting values between our country and our culture, vis-a-vis our God and our scriptures, and that has to do with the value we place and in many cases the ultimate value people place on money and the things that money can buy. In this capitalistic society, whose way, way, way most marketed dream is one version or another of the American dream, the texts this week are challenging and difficult to say the very least. But since Jesus, the Lord of Easter, is the one stepping in this morning as the main voice in this challengingly difficult conversation. If we're willing to look himself, look him in the eye and allow ourselves to be challenged, we may find that we are more than challenged. The outcome may be more than difficult. It may be life giving. Our main focus this morning will be on how Jesus in the Gospel text addresses this theme of money and stuff, but let's first give a nod to how all three of our other texts uh, set the table for that conversation with Jesus, because they all three surely do. Our first reading from the book of Ecclesiastes was written by a very, very wealthy someone, tradition says Solomon, but that may or may not be the case, um, who near the end of his life reflects on how he now has all this stuff after a lifetime of amassing money and stuff only now near the end of his life to think to himself, but what do I actually have? It's just money and stuff. And soon I'll die. Then it'll be somebody else's money and stuff. And they didn't even do anything to earn it. They'll probably just squander it away. Ecclesiastes, uh, if you want to go home and read it, um, it's great reading, but it's not for the faint of heart. For whereas, a few decades ago, for example, there was a popular t-shirt that read, uh, the one who dies with the most toys wins, Ecclesiastes t-shirt says, the one who dies with the most toys is still dead. (laughs) Very uplifting, right? Actually, a good friend of mine told me a while back that Ecclesiastes is one of his favorite books of the Bible. He has a degree in, in uh, and a career in marketing and business, which was all well and good, except that it wasn't soul food. And it was the book of Ecclesiastes that did him, he said, the spiritual favor of pointing out to him that money and things and marketing and business are fine as far as they go, but they don't go all that far. Because money and things by themselves can't feed souls this morning psalm says the same thing not just about money and worldly wealth but also about worldly success and worldly renown as it really I think sardonically observes that those who are wealthy and successful and famous and wise in the wisdom and ways of the world, in the end, die the very same death that fools do. And even if they were so successful as to have entire lands named after themselves, it says, in the end, the only land that is theirs for keeps is the small plot of land where their bodies will be laid to rest. Again uplifting, right? Well, it actually might be a step in the direction of uplifting, because remember, we worship a God who raises the dead, not only unto eternal life one day, but also unto life that is the real thing, here and now and every day. Life that is the real thing, the book of Colossians reminded us in our second lesson for today, is life that is lived here and now as life that is really and truly alive, for clothed in the risen from the dead life and love of Jesus Christ, it has put to death, among other things, greed. Which, Colossians observes as as a parenthetical remark, is actually idolatry. Idolatry being when you worship as God, something like money, for example, that isn't God. And idolatry like that, Colossians says, every time births death. But remember, Colossians goes on to say, remember, 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 our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a God who raises the dead. Leads to an observation that I want to make, but I don't have time to develop at this, at this time, but maybe I'll make it and maybe we'll come back it some other time. As Easter people, sometimes the very first step toward new life is not the birth of something new within us, but rather the death of something old within us, greed for example, which then makes room for something new. which sets the table now for our signature story in our text for today featuring one of Jesus' parables, which has come to be known as the parable of the rich fool, which begins, writes Luke, when someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. We could speculate on the details, but we won't. We will observe that in the course of time, this is surely not the first time and surely, surely, surely not the last time when what one accumulated and left to one's heirs did not, in the end, bless them, but rather divided them. Estate estate fights, my attorney friends tell me, are ugly, ugly, ugly ones every single time. And who's at fault in this particular estate fight? It doesn't say. Is it the one who's asking Jesus for arbitration now because he wants more than he was given, perhaps more than his share? Or is it his older brother who, as the executor of the estate, has perhaps hung on to what he was supposed to share? Doesn't say. All it says is that Jesus decisively and decidedly steps out of this triangle he's been invited into, then to say to his followers, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions Jesus you see doesn't even address the legalities of this state in a question choosing instead to address the realities of the human heart having apparently diagnosed that whatever is going on here exactly, and whoever exactly is wrong or right, what's actually driving this situation before them here is not rights or wrongs or legalities, but greed. Greed which he then speaks to with that parable, the land of a rich man produced abundantly. He thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops, and then he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? And then he delivers the punchline. So it is with those who store up for themselves treasures but are not rich toward God. Now, of course, in our American culture and context, many who hear this parable, including, I'm thinking, more than a few of us, quite possibly, might think, well, why is this man called a fool? I mean, one could easily argue that he's wise and responsible. There's no mention of him having gotten his, his, his things wickedly or sinfully. He has a thriving farming business for which he presumably has worked very hard. And his land has produced so abundantly that he doesn't have enough storage in his barns, so he plans to pull down his barns and build bigger ones for his grain and all his stuff, and, and then he'll have ample savings set aside for the future. I mean, my gosh, isn't this what we're all encouraged to do? To work hard and be wise and responsible and save for the future, so that when the time comes, we can sit back and relax and enjoy the fruit of our labor in our golden years? Truth be told, folks, um, I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one for whom this hits pretty close to home. I'm 66, 67, come November, and I may not have any barns that I'm building, but I do have a pension plan and a social security plan that I've been building for 40 years now, and though the time isn't here yet, I happen to believe I have a little time left to serve this call, I nevertheless, like most most folks, do think the time When, you know, Kathy and I can maybe step into some of the plans we've always thought of, and we've thought of those years that would be our golden years, and I will tell you the truth, how much I have in my barns is going to be part of that deciding process. Darn it! I guess uh, I'm the fool, right? Well, God... God will be the judge. Although, in full disclosure, being both the saint and the sinner that I am, um, am I a fool? The answer is probably a little yes and a little no. Clear truth of this parable, however, is that this farmer is not deemed a fool because he's wealthy. Doesn't say that. Or because he saves for the future. Doesn't say that. He's deemed a fool for two other things. The first tone of which one commentator I read, David Lose, uh, said that it can be seen when you notice that the consistent focus throughout this conversation that he has with himself is himself. What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And then I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. The relentless use of the first-person pronouns, I and my, betrays a life that is preoccupied with self. There's no thought to using any of the abundance to helping others. There's no expression of gratitude for his good fortune. There's no mention of God at all. Lo says this farmer has fallen prey to worshiping the most unholy trinity, but very popular God, that being the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. Which leads to the second reason God in this parable calls this man a fool in spite of his worldly success. And that is that he thinks all that is worth ultimately having can be had with his money and possessions. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, drink, be merry. This is pretty much a poster child moment of hubris narrated by tragic comedy because get this he starts talking to his soul about his money tries to impress his soul with his money tries to convince his soul that its deepest depths should be satisfied with things that money can buy revealing himself to be indeed yet one more fool in the vast congregation of fools who've also foolishly thought that souls have closets for stuff and pockets for billfolds. David Lowe, slightly paraphrased, puts it this way, the question is not is material abundance bad, but rather is our material abundance sufficient to meet the weight of meaning, significance, purpose, and joy that we seek. Can our wealth secure a relative degree of comfort? Certainly. Can it grant us confidence that we are loved and in right relationship with God and neighbor? Certainly not. Only as we recognize that the gifts of ultimate worth, dignity, meaning, and relationship, as well as the gift of forever, are just that, gifts offered to us freely by God can we hope to place our relative wealth in proper spiritual perspective, thus to be grateful to God for it and generous to others with it. Gratitude and generosity, of course, are things that some in the world will tell you are foolish, which they no doubt are I suppose if the highest dream you dream is no higher than just an American dream. If the highest dreams you dream, on the other hand, are the same dreams God dreams, then gratitude and generosity are not the things fools are made of, but rather the things that life, that is true life, is made of. Amen.